What's happening in the world coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. President Biden on track to leave for India today amid concerns over COVID. We bring the latest on the ground in New Delhi about what's to unfold in the coming days. Former President Donald Trump says he's willing to testify in his own criminal trial. We have more on his comments from a radio interview. No more funding for archery and hunting programs in schools. That's the Department of Education's plan. A big bipartisan group of senators is now fighting back. Mayor Eric Adams has strong words about what the illegal immigrant crisis is doing to New York City and what it could do in the future. And 5,000 years of Chinese culture brought to life. The 10th NTD Chinese Classical Dance Competition kicks off today. Our reporter is on the ground. President Biden still on track to attend the G20 summit despite concerns about COVID. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao is now on the ground in New Delhi. Iris, when is Biden getting there and how might COVID complicate his trip? Good afternoon to you as well, Steph. So around 5 p.m. your time this afternoon, President Biden is scheduled to depart the White House for the G20 summit to be held here in New Delhi, India. And that's, of course, amid concerns about if he can continue to test negative for COVID-19 after First Lady Jill Biden tested positive on Monday night. The White House said on Wednesday that President Biden had been testing negative for COVID-19 for a third time in a row, and he will continue to test before he leaves for India. But that's as his Actions did come under scrutiny after he took off his mask and left in the middle of a Medal of Honor award ceremony on Tuesday. Here's how the White House explained this. He had, yes, he had his, his mask off briefly. He left uh, uh, when there was a pause in the program because, again, he wanted to minimize uh, certainly uh, uh, his impact on folks who were there. The White House says that President Biden, as a close contact to the First Lady, will continue to mask up, monitor for symptoms as well as testing for a 10-day period, which means that it does overlap with the G20 summit to be held here and that President Biden will be masking up when he's meeting world leaders right here. Definitely a lot to watch there, especially when President Biden mingles with leaders. So what's he trying to achieve at the summit? Any specific agenda? So while he's at the summit here, a big focus of his will be to rally other countries to really follow the U.S.'s lead to bolster the World Bank as well as the International Monetary Fund. And the purpose in doing that is to help these organizations better support developing countries with transparent and high-quality investments, which forms a contrast with China's lending practices through the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been criticized as not transparent and often turn out to be debt traps. So given the purpose of this move, is the White House calling out China directly? That's a great question, Steph. So actually, the White House has been really reluctant to directly point out the ultimate goal of countering China in its push to bolster the World Bank. For example, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said at a briefing this week that the common good is what's really the focus of this move rather than to counter China. Watch. World Bank reform is not about China in no small part because China is a shareholder in the World Bank. It's for the entire international community. 
But that does stand in contrast with what Jake Sullivan said just weeks ago during a conference call in which he directly pointed out that the reason why the U.S. needs to provide a funding alternative to these developing countries is because it needs to counter China's often unsustainable and coercive lending practices through its Belt and Road Initiative. So it's really remaining to be seen whether President Biden will directly call out China during the G20 summit here, which is to begin shortly after he lands here on Friday. Seth. Thank you, Iris. For one group in India's capital, the much-anticipated summit could be a different story. Residents of a slum in New Delhi are left homeless with their illegal houses bulldozed to the ground just ahead of G20. Residents of this slum in New Delhi expected to benefit from the G20 summit being held barely 500 yards from their homes. Instead, they were made homeless. Kushbu Devi, her husband and three children were among scores of people whose houses in Janta camp were demolished over the past few months. We've been living here for the last 25 to 30 years. Where do we go now that our houses have suddenly been demolished? We've got no facilities or a place to live, and we've become homeless and are on the road. Some of those living in the slum approached the Delhi High Court to stop the evictions, but the court ruled the settlements illegal. Then city authorities ordered them to vacate by May the 31st. Both activists and residents, like Devi, say it's part of the beautification work for the summit beginning on September the 9th. The authorities have asked us to vacate the slum because of the G20, as they have to clean the area. If they have to clean, that does not mean they have to remove the poor. If the poor are looking so bad, they can make something nice, put a curtain or a sheet so that the poor are not visible. However, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government officials say the houses were built illegally on government land and their removal is a continuous activity. The demolition started four months ago. A junior housing minister said that by July, almost 230 acres of government land had been reclaimed. These houses in slums like Jantakamp are built over years like patchwork. In 2021, officials said that 13.5 million people reside in unauthorised colonies in Delhi. Most of the residents work in nearby areas and have lived within the confines of their small homes for decades. For Devi's husband, Dharmendra Kumar, uprooting has a severe impact. I don't earn so much that I can afford to rent a room elsewhere. And if we relocate from here, my children's education will also suffer. Here they are able to study as the school is nearby. India's Supreme Court ruled last month that squatters cannot claim the right to occupy public land. It said that, at best, they can seek time to vacate the public land and apply for rehabilitation. Another debate centered around India. The country's president called herself the president of Bharat instead of the president of India this week. She even put the title on official dinner invitations for a G20 reception. India is also called Bharat or Bharata or Hindustan. Those are its pre-colonial names in Indian languages, used interchangeably by ordinary Indians and officials. But high offices usually stick to titles, such as President or Prime Minister of India, while communicating in English. So what changed? Over the years, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's ruling nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, has been changing colonial names, saying it'll help India move past a mentality of slavery. Supporters of the invitation name change say British colonial rulers coined the name India, while the real name was always Bharat. To Hindu groups linked to the BJP, the G20 summit was an opportunity to shed India's colonial baggage. 
but others opposed the name change. Mamata Banerjee, a top opposition leader, said everyone in India says Bharat, it's nothing new. So what happened suddenly, she asked, that the government had to change the name of the country? The answer, she and others say, is that it aimed to eclipse a major opposition alliance formed two months ago to fight next year's elections. It's called India, an acronym, and that's to challenge the nationalist BJP on its own turf, analysts say. Another opposition politician pointed out that the country name India had brand value built up over centuries. And in the U.S., a lawsuit filed yesterday seeks to bar former President Trump from the primary ballot in Colorado. A liberal group argues the 2024 candidate is ineligible to run for the White House again. They're citing a rarely used clause in the U.S. Constitution aimed at candidates who've supported an insurrection. The complaint was filed by the group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington on behalf of six Colorado voters. The state's top election officials are looking for guidance from the courts on how to interpret the 14th Amendment clause used only a few times since the 1960s. The clause cites a wide range of offices under the United States. It says the provision applies to presidential electors, but not the presidency itself. There's also debate about whether Trump's actions constitute an insurrection under the language of the amendment. And Trump says he's willing to testify in his defense if any of his criminal cases go to trial. He made the remarks during an interview with radio host Hugh Hewitt. Take a look. So if you have to go to trial, will you testify in your own defense? Oh, yes, absolutely. You'll well, take well, the stand. I that, I would, that I look forward to. Trump didn't specify which of the four criminal cases he was referring to. He pleaded not guilty to all charges and accused prosecutors of targeting him for political purposes. Previously, Trump had refused to testify in a civil battery and defamation case brought by author E. Jean Carroll. And a recent CNN poll suggests that President Biden is facing decreased confidence among Democratic-aligned voters. Here to offer his analysis is Epoch Times columnist Roger Simon. He's also the director of the Presidential Roller Coaster 2024, an Epic TV and NTD co-production. We spoke earlier today. Roger, welcome. Great to have you back on our show. Good to be here again. Now, I'd love to start with the recent CNN poll that says that almost half of all Americans would vote for any GOP candidate over Biden. What do you think is behind this? Biden, in short, he's in trouble. Uh, but there's nothing really that new in this. I mean, I think this is what's been coming for a long time. And what we're going to be looking at is a replacement for Biden. When that happens, though, is unclear. Do you think that this, you know, these polls present an opportunity for other prominent Democrats to step forward? Can you see any murmurings of Yeah, of I think they've been planning on it for a long time, frankly. Uh, but these polls will just add to it. Uh, you know, there's um, Governor Newsom and there's also Michelle Obama, although she may have taken a hit by uh, what Tucker Carlson revealed last night. 
what do you think about his chances at this point if he were to tr enter the race? To win? Well, he's dragging uh, a big bunch of tin cans behind him, which is called California. I think that a lot of the country is very aware that California has been mismanaged and essentially ruined. So he's going to have to deal with that. Uh, whether uh, you know there are enough loyal Democrats to ignore that is an interesting question. I don't know the answer. Now, polling, recent polling suggests that many Americans, most Americans, believe that Biden, the president, uh, did know about Hunter Biden, his son's business dealings, or was involved with them. How do you think that could impact Biden's presidential run? Oh, well, that clear, that's one of the reasons I don't think Biden is going to run. I mean, it, because there's going to be more of that coming out rather than less. And I think the Democrats in power realize that and they are going to try to find some way to replace him. And so what are some of the other factors that you think are behind these poll numbers right now for Biden? Uh, well, the uh, the other obvious factors are age and possible senility, which are kind of evident. But, you know, in that sense, Trump is almost as old as Biden, but he doesn't seem to be uh, have a senility issue. He's uh, an energizer bunny. If, if anything, it's the opposite. <laughs> right. Many people would see him that way. And I want to look just at the Biden administration. What kind of policies or actions do you think that they could possibly take to reverse these poll trends? If there's anything that you think they could do, I know I, I don't think they can. I, I think they're going to the the best thing that they can do is what they always try to do, which is obfuscate and hide what's uh, the relationship between Hunter and uh, Joe. That they've they've you know the Department of Justice helps them out, but there's no, there's a limit to what can be done at this point. All right, Roger Simon. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much. Great to speak with you. Next, Google will require election advertisers to disclose when their ads contain AI-generated content. The boom in AI has given rise to concerns of fake or misleading content. The policy would apply to image, video, and audio content and would begin in mid-November. Google-owned cybersecurity firm Mandiant said last month it saw increasing use of AI to conduct manipulative information campaigns in recent years. Mandiant says generative AI would be, enable groups to limited, with limited resources to produce higher quality content at scale. Google says any artificially generated content that is irrelevant to the claims made in the ad will be exempt from the disclosure requirements. Google has been rolling out updates to its transparency measures before the next presidential election. And coming up, Biden administration makes a key decision affecting oil and gas drilling in Alaska. A Republican senator calls the move devastating. And a partial victory for a group of New York City teachers who were denied religious exemptions and lost their jobs during the pandemic. We hear what a judge ruled and what's next. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Lawmakers want to keep funding for archery and hunting programs in schools. They're accusing the federal government of misinterpreting a congressional bill with an aim to cut funding for such programs.
Here's more. The Department of Education, or DOE, is set to cease funding for school archery and hunting programs. To do that, the department is using the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, or BSCA, which was passed last year. The BSCA passed in the aftermath of a few high-profile shootings across the country. It prohibits federal funds from being used to train school staff in using dangerous weapons. A bipartisan group of lawmakers sent this letter to the DOE this week, saying, Unfortunately, and contrary to congressional intent, the Department of Education has misinterpreted the language to exclude certain educational activities from receiving federal resources. The lawmakers say the DOE is now asking local and state education agencies to seek alternate funding sources for archery and hunting programs. As the lawmakers put it, this is concerning because of the important role these enrichment programs can play in students' lives. Archery is an inclusive extracurricular activity that empowers students from all backgrounds to learn a sport and compete. The letter was signed by 18 senators, including Republicans, Democrats, and an independent. They're asking the department to interpret BSCA as Congress intended and stop asking other entities for funding for the programs. NTD reached out to the DOE for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. In August, lawmakers introduced multiple related bills. New York Congresswoman Claudia Tenney introduced the Protecting Hunting and Archery in Schools Act, which would remove current federal restrictions on hunting and archery programs. Tennessee Congressman Mark Green introduced the Protecting Hunting Heritage and Education Act, which would guarantee federal funds for such programs. Meanwhile, opponents of bow hunting say quick kills are rare, meaning animals suffer an unnecessarily painful death. And the Biden administration is canceling seven oil and gas leases in Alaska issued during the Trump administration. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the move, which has angered some Republicans. The leases canceled by the Department of the Interior cover 365,000 acres in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska, or NPRA. The NPRA is a 23 million acre area on the state's north slope. It is the largest undisturbed public land in the United States. The department will also ban new leases on more than 40% of the reserve. President Biden issued a statement saying the U.S. has a responsibility to protect the treasured region for all ages. He says the move will help, quote, preserve our Arctic lands and wildlife while honoring the culture, history, and enduring wisdom of Alaska natives who have lived on these lands since time immemorial. The Trump administration issued the seven leases to the Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority one day before President Biden's inauguration. Republican Senator Dan Sullivan from Alaska criticized the move, calling it unlawful and devastating for the state. He wrote on X, This war on Alaska is devastating for not only Alaska, but also the energy security of the nation. The Earth Justice Environmental Group commended the decision. Group President Abigail Dillon said, Looking ahead, we hope to see the strongest possible protections for the Arctic refuge and the Western Arctic in the years to come. However, reactions from indigenous groups were mixed. Voice of the Arctic Inupiat says, The decision flies in the face of our region's wishes and self-determination. While another native group called the Gwich'in Steering Committee applauded the action and said oil and gas development would threaten the Gwich'in people's way of life. Alaskan oil production has dwindled in the last three decades. The state currently produces less than 500,000 barrels per day of crude, down from more than 2 million in 1988. 
Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And over in Texas, a federal judge has ordered the removal of the floating barriers in the Rio Grande River. They're designed to stop illegal immigrants from crossing the river at the Texas-Mexico border. The issue has been in the courts since July. A lawsuit accused Texas of violating the Rivers and Harbors Appropriation Act by placing the buoys in U.S. water without permission. Governor Greg Abbott says the buoys are intended to keep illegal immigrants from crossing into Texas from Mexico. Texas already appealed the judge's order. The governor's office said the state is prepared to take the fight all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Mayor Eric Adams is predicting the downfall of New York City, telling New Yorkers how serious the illegal immigrant crisis is, and he says he doesn't see an end to it. Take a look. We're getting no support on this national crisis, and we're receiving no support. And let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. At a town hall Wednesday night, the mayor said the city can't afford what's, what it's doing to care for the migrants and that it's creating a deficit that will affect all city services. Many of the migrants were bused from Texas, which has been sending illegal immigrants to New York City since May 2022. Adams says the city is feeding, clothing, and housing the migrants, and also educating migrant children. He added that the city is giving them everything they need, including health care. The mayor says the illegal immigrants first came from Venezuela, then Ecuador and Russian-speaking countries. He says now it's people from Western Africa and all over the globe that are arriving in the city. He says he warned that the crisis would impact every neighborhood in the city and that now it has. And 10 New York City teachers fired for declining the COVID vaccination are getting their jobs back with back pay. A judge ruled that the religious exemptions once denied to them are now granted. But not all of the plaintiffs were successful. Here to speak to me about this case is Michael Kane, one of the plaintiffs and the founder of the New York grassroots organization Teachers for Choice. We spoke earlier today. Michael, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. A big win in yesterday's ruling. How are you all feeling to start with? Um, it's, it's bittersweet. You know, 10 of the plaintiffs won the right to return to their jobs with back pay our religious exemptions were granted by the judge from the bench, um, but two of our plaintiffs were denied uh, due to they said they didn't exhaust the administrative process fully. So our attorneys are taking issue with that now. And also, um, there's a chance New York City is going to appeal and is going to say, no, you're not coming back. So we're still in that process. It's a big, big victory, but um, these things are battles. It's, the war is not over. Yes, and this battle is continuing, as you know, across the country in so many different ways. So what would you say is the significance of this case for all those other people? So about eight or nine months ago, this very same judge, Judge Ralph Porzio, ruled that nine sanitation workers should return to work with back pay, their, their exemptions accepted. Um, now we have a second time now for educators. This is setting precedent. 
um, that it is not okay to discriminate against someone sincerely held religious beliefs. And, you know, two, three years ago, we were in the midst of insanity with, like, really, the COVID virus really took over people's minds more than anything else was the real problem that we had. And you see people talking about mandates, lockdowns, these things, but it's much different now. You're seeing mandates for masks come up and be rescinded in days. So it's actually um, just another piece in the puzzle about how I believe the American people are waking up to what really happened and not being pushed around by authoritarians this go around. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Children's Health Defense have supported this case. How could you walk me through some of that? Yeah, so back in 2021, when we got fired, uh, teachers, firefighters, cops, medical professionals, the only prominent individual who came out and was on the streets of Manhattan at a New York Freedom Rally fighting for us was Robert F. Kennedy Jr., certainly the only candidate for president that was there. And that's why my organization, Teachers for Choice, has fully endorsed Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, and he was the head of Children's Health Defense. He's now the chairman on leave. And CHD has had our back this whole time with tons of resources, attorneys, lawyers. I just can't thank Bobby Kennedy and Children's Health Defense enough. We'd be nowhere without them. And finally, this case is likely to be challenged, as you mentioned. So where can people stay informed about upcoming cases and, you know, this particular case? Everybody should go to teachersforchoice.org, teachersforchoice.org. We actually just launched a new Substack that is teachersforchoice.substack.com that'll be dedicated to all the legal updates. So stay tuned there, subscribe there, and you'll get all the latest as it breaks. Michael Kane, Teachers for Choice founder, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, the fall TV lineup is usually when networks roll out their best shows, but amid the Hollywood strike, the lineup has shrunk to reruns and reality TV. And America's largest teachers union says the majority of teachers are spending more of their own money on school supplies. We'll have the details soon when we return. Broadcast television networks kick off the fall's TV season this month, but strikes in Hollywood have depleted lineups. Prepare for game shows, reruns, and reality TV. For reality TV, ABC's The Golden Bachelor will feature 22 women aged 60 to 75 competing for the affection of a Midwestern grandfather. Over on Fox, no-nonsense chef Gordon Ramsay will work double shifts with shows airing on two nights. New episodes of scripted shows will be in much shorter supply. ABC's hit comedy Abbott Elementary, Paramount Network's top-rated drama Yellowstone, and NBC's long-running crime series Law & Order will show reruns. And the head of the United Auto Workers issued a stark warning for Detroit automakers yesterday. He says the union will go on strike if a new agreement isn't reached by the time contracts expire next week. Here to discuss is NTD business host, Don Ma. Don, welcome, how's it going? I'm good, how about you, Steph? Excellent, very good, thank you. First time on the show today, so yeah. enjoying it. Um, now, Don, yeah. So, Don, tell us more about the situation. Right, uh, so the union president, Sean Fain, made it very clear that the union would in fact strike against any of the companies that haven't reached a tentative deal by the time their national contracts end. And the, the companies in question here are General Motors, Stellantis, and Ford. 
Uh, contracts with the three companies uh, expire at 11.59 p.m. on September 4th, so let's keep that in mind. Um, so far, there has been a lot of back and forth in terms of bargaining. Fain did report uh, some progress in the negotiations. He says the union will meet Thursday uh, with GM to hear the company's response to the UAW's uh, demands. Um, besides that, discussions are also underway with Ford uh, about wages and benefits. Um, Stellantis, though, said uh, uh, yesterday it intends to give the UAW a counteroffer maybe by the end of this week. Right. So what would be the impact if there was a strike? Yeah, so the UAW has said that 97% of members voted in favor of authoring a strike if no agreement is reached. And a strike against all three major automakers could cause damage not only to the industry as a whole, but also to the Midwest and even the national economy, depending on how long it lasted. Uh, the auto industry accounts for uh, about 3% of the nation's economic output. A prolonged strike could also lead eventually to higher vehicle prices, and of course nobody wants that. Uh, but the good news is Fain has signaled that the union is willing to compromise on some of their demands, which, so, which shows at least there is some level of flexibility, flexibility which is always good. Fain says uh, the union actually doesn't want to strike and would actually prefer to reach new contracts with automakers. So what is the union asking for then? Uh, so some of the union's demands uh, include a 46% across the board pay raise, 32-hour um, work week with 40 hours of pay, and the rest restoration of traditional pensions for new hires. Um, on top of that, the, un uh, the union also wants uh, all temporary workers at U.S. Auto automakers to be made permanent, uh, also enhanced profit sharing and cost of living adjustments. Wow, great. Thanks, thanks so much for the update, Don. Yeah, thank you. Next, with school back in session, it's not just parents spending more on money on school supplies. Reports are showing teachers are also digging deeper to meet their classroom needs out of pocket. First of all, let's stand up. This back-to-school season, more than 90% of teachers are spending more of their own money on classroom supplies. That's according to the National Education Association, which is the largest teachers union in the U.S. It estimates that during the 2023-2024 academic year, teachers will spend $800 or more out of pocket. And so for teachers, that's roughly one to two paychecks every school year they're spending on buying supplies and stepping into the gap for these students. And inflation is making it harder for teachers to stretch those dollars. Most school supplies have jumped in price, with the cost of crayons, pens, and pencils up nearly 19% year over year. A separate report by Study.com found that nearly 70% of teachers cited persistent inflation as having a noticeable impact on their ability to afford supplies on their own this year. You know, when no books are on sale at Target and I'd go buy a whole bunch of them, so I'd have them so when a kid needed it, I just went to the stash that I bought. And it comes at a time when more teachers are quitting their jobs, citing low salaries and other concerns, which is worsening an ongoing teacher shortage in the U.S. In February 2023, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there were nearly 150,000 more openings in public education than there were hires. With the high cost of inflation and prices, et cetera, teachers are concerned. And we're seeing all across the U.S. a demand for core essential school supplies. 
Coming up, Microsoft is shedding new light on alleged Chinese hacking of U.S. officials' emails. How did the breach get started? And Japan is testing fish to quell concerns about nuclear content in its seafood. Find out the results here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. President Biden heading to New Delhi to meet with the world's largest economies at G20. He remains negative for COVID and will also travel to Vietnam this week. Trump said in a radio interview that he looks forward to testifying in his own criminal trial, but he didn't specify which case he was referring to. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says the illegal immigrant crisis will destroy the city. He says there's no support and the crisis is beyond affordability. New disclosure on alleged Chinese hacking of U.S. officials' emails. Microsoft says the notorious breach happened after hackers stole sensitive data from one of the company's engineers. That gave them access to a cryptographic key that was later used to break into U.S. officials' email accounts. The cyber espionage campaign caused a furor in Washington when it was uncovered this summer. Microsoft has been under scrutiny from U.S. lawmakers and officials who have demanded more information on how the hackers broke into the email accounts. The company says it's corrected the issue that led to the breach. And is U.S. technology boosting Huawei's new phone? Washington is trying to figure out how this manufacturer was able to launch its smartphone amid sweeping U.S. sanctions. Authorities are now working to determine if restrictions were bypassed to create the phone's advanced chip. Huawei's new phone contains a chip believed to have been made by Chinese chipmaker SMIC, with a tech breakthrough that has left many wondering how it was realized. The representative, Representative Mike Gallagher, called on the White House to end all export sales to Huawei and SMIC. He said the chip likely could not be produced without U.S. technology. Both Huawei and SMIC are on U.S. sanction lists. That means companies have to apply for U.S. export licenses to supply technology to them. And a dramatic footage of floods as the remnants of Typhoon Haikui drenched South China for a third day since making landfall. Its storms flooded parts of southeastern Fujian province, damaging over 2,500 homes and forcing almost 300,000 people to evacuate. Streets in the cities of Fucheng and Yantai turned into rivers due to torrential rains. State media reported economic losses totaling some $690 million. No radioactive fish are swimming around Japan. The nation has been testing daily since it began releasing treated water from its wrecked nuclear plant last month. In Japan's Miyagi Prefecture, just north of Fukushima, researchers like Akira Matsumoto are working to help the country quell marine safety concerns. Since Japan began releasing treated water from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the sea last month, the researchers have been testing fish from the area every day that the weather allows. They work on collecting a radioactive isotope called tritium from the fish samples to measure the level of radiation. 
Matsumoto says he believes full disclosure of the test results is crucial. We are conducting the tests and releasing the results properly so it can help people feel assured. The results are published on the website of Japan's fishery agency. So far, it's reported no fish with detectable levels of tritium. But the reputation of Japan's fishing industry has taken a hit since the release of the treated water, a move strongly opposed by neighboring countries. China has currently suspended imports of all aquatic products from Japan. Local wholesalers at a bustling fishing market in Sendai City, just under 70 miles north of the stricken nuclear plant, hope the testing can help rebuild customer confidence. I don't want people to question whether we should eat the seafood which China has completely banned. That's why we post the daily test results at the market to show that it's safe. TEPCO, the operator of the wrecked plant, filters most radioactive elements out of the water. But tritium is instead diluted because when it exists in the form of tritiated water, it is difficult to separate from water. Because it's chemically identical to ordinary water, and so it passes through organisms like ordinary water, which doesn't biomagnify. Smith says that means the tritiated water won't accumulate in the bodies of fish unlike other radioactive substances, and will stay at same level as the waters around the fish. But he cautioned that the concentration of tritium in the water being released is not yet at the maximum planned level. The release of the first batch of treated water, equivalent to about three Olympic pools, will take about 17 days. Estimates show it would take about 30 years to release it all. When we come back, a dance competition that aims to uplift viewers by displaying virtue. We have on-the-ground coverage. Microchips help Italian Parmesan producers combat counterfeit cheese. It works with a QR code attached to the outside of the wheel. Could flavor be more than just taste and smell? A new study suggests that flowers impact how we perceive wine. We'll be back with more here on NTD News. Traditional culture on display through dance. NTD's 10th International Classical Chinese Dance Competition kicks off today at the Performing Arts Center in Purchase College in Purchase, New York. NTD's Chris Beers is on the scene. Chris, how's it going over there? Hey, Steph, it's going great. We're kicking off the preliminary rounds for the junior division today. We'll be kicking off the preliminary rounds for the senior division, the 18 and up to 40 crowd tomorrow. We'll have the semifinals for both the junior and the senior division on Saturday. And on Sunday, we'll have the finals. Now, contestants will perform both a set of techniques as well as a dance routine. The dance routine will display a story from Chinese history or classical Chinese values. Now, the set of techniques will give the judges the ability to assess contestants' ability to perform yeah, certain techniques, certain skills, movements, poses, stuff. So what separates classical Chinese dance from, say, modern dance or ballet? 
Well, first of all, classical Chinese dance has an ancient history and tracks with Chinese culture, which dates back about 5,000 years. And many of the movements actually come from martial arts, believe it or not. And while modern dance is a little bit more fluid and open-ended, without any real set rules, um, classical Chinese dance has set standards, requirements, and rules for contestants. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. So where, where can we catch this competition then, and when? Both the semifinals and the finals will be broadcast on Saturday and Sunday, respectively. Viewers can see them on our streaming platforms at YouTube, as well as on NTD's television network. That's all we have for you for now. Steph, you can tune in for more tonight at 6 p.m. on the Evening News with Tiffany Meyer. Thank you, Chris. Microchips are helping Italian Parmesan producers fight fakes. The chips are attached to the dairy product and are about the size of a grain of salt. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the counterfeit cheese. The consortium of Parmigiano-Reggiano is testing microchips to combat fakes. The new technology is used with a QR code attached to the outside of the wheel of cheese. A tiny dot is inserted in this plate that can hardly be seen, which can be read with a reader when it is applied to the cheese wheel and will allow automatic and computerized reading, guaranteeing perfect readability in any condition and at any time of life. The QR code contains all the data to trace the product, but it can wear away with time and transport. The chips are a technology that, in the light of the experimentation we are carrying out, will enable and strengthen traceability, which is the tool behind the guarantee of the originality of all Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese produced. Parmigiano-Reggiano is one of the most counterfeited cheeses in the world. The consortium's move aims to fight off cheaper imitations. We use an industrial technology to insert this chip, which is much smaller than a grain of salt, just to give a reference to the size of the chip. And this casein plate is made of very thin layers and is inserted in this sort of wafer and is then embedded in the casein plate. Most importantly, the fakes do not satisfy the requirements for the famous cheese. The problem is that, unfortunately, there are often counterfeits, products called Parmigiano-Reggiano, even on world markets where the product inside is not always exclusively Parmigiano-Reggiano. Producers are first testing the chips on around 120,000 wheels of cheese. The chips provide data on place, month, and year of production. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And a new study finds that the flavor of wine changes when flowers are placed in front of the drinker. It seems there's a psychological component to how we perceive tastes. Here's the details. The UK's Center of Excellence in Wine Education has found flowers can influence how drinkers enjoy their vino. When the test subjects looked at more delicate florals, they reported a fruitier taste and softer texture. Fuller, more colorful flowers made the wine seem stronger and more complex. This is just the beginning. It's the first time that we had this phenomenon proved or showed. So now we need to explore the specificities of each context in how you can, for example, combine flowers with music. Sommelier Nicola Trevisan has been in the business for a decade. He's skeptical. 
Just by looking at it, I don't think it does. Not sold, not sold yet. But after he tests the theory, something unusual happens. The intensity of the fruit in the wine um, goes up quite a bit. The study shows that flavor is more than just what our taste buds detect or our noses smell. There's a psychological influence too, based on what we see. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Stephanie Cox, filling in for Chris Beers. Thank you.